<clears throat> Thank you, Willie, for those kind remarks, which I do not deserve. My name is Johnson, and I am a very grateful, recovering alcoholic, high body, and sober another day by the grace of God, working through the fellowship of AA. And for this, I'll be forever grateful. Right here, I'd like to say now, I want to thank uh, Jim and the committee who made it responsible for me being here, and I'm most uh, grateful and privileged to be here with you today on this weekend as a wonderful conference. There's been a lot of feelings shared here, and it's so good to see these faces that I don't see too often. I won't start the calling names because I'm afraid I'd miss some, and there are a lot of faces I can't attach names to. But I am happy to see you again. And again, I'm happy to meet some of the friends that I hadn't met before. And I'm having a wonderful time, too. And sometimes I get a little emotion and emotional, and I don't make an apology for it. It's because of the feelings of joy and gladness, the warmth that you share with me through the expression that you show on your face. And I wish you could be standing where I am and look back out there. And there's a lot of things, uh, feelings re reflected back to me, and this is why, and is again not making any excuses or explanations, it's just a fact. This is why I have this feeling of fullness And quite often, my cup run is over. <laughs> and it's a good feeling, too. And again, thank you, Jim, and the committee for letting me come over. You know, uh, listening to uh, the chairman and relating to the little story he told about the vacant seat on the bus. My mind, uh, you know, it's <laughs> kind of go back and forth every once in a while in the reflection and remind me of a story I heard of this little boy on the bus. He was, he had gotten in a seat and he jumped up and he was running back and forth one end of the bus to the other. And while he was away from his seat, someone else came and sat down. And it happened to be a, a woman. And he looked at all the other vacant seats, and he didn't see his cap. He had left his cap sitting in that seat. And he walked up there, and he said, Pardon me, lady. He says, uh, You're sitting on something that belongs to me. <laughs> she says, I beg your pardon, son. He says, I've been sitting on this for about 40 years. So, uh, these things do happen, you know, even when we're kids. But I'm here to share with you my experience of strength 
in hope. And this is what I will try and attempt to do, and I'd like to relate it to the three pertinent ideas in how it works. Uh, a, it, I was a practicing alcoholic, and I couldn't manage my own life. And B, that probably no human power could have relieved my alcoholism. But God could and would if he was sought. And uh, as my story just closed in a general way what I used to be like, what happened, and what it's like today, what I'm like today is what's important. I had my first drink at the age of 16. And at that time, I really didn't know my makeup. I was very shy, timid, and self-conscious, full of fears and frustrations. And I didn't know this, but I had my first drink of alcohol, moonshine, out of a large tray working in a grocery store as a grocery boy. And the boss sent me to the bootleggers uh, to get him a shot. And so I went and got it back, and he poured him a little in a large tray and a little red rock ginger ale on top of it. And he upped and down it, and as it went down, he made that expression. <sighs> and so he said, John, you want a taste? I said, yes, sir. He went through the same procedure, a little in the large tree and a little red rock ginger ale, ginger ale, and as I upped and down it, and that feeling went down, as it went down, I made that same expression. <sighs> and I wasn't, uh, say, copying after him, but that feeling that I had as it went down, it was a good feeling. And it seemed as, just, as if it just relaxed my whole body. It just from the top of my head to the tip of my toes. It was a change of feelings. And little did I realize at that time, this was the beginning of a journey going downhill. One wasn't enough then, and one never was enough for 25 years of drinking. And it was a rough and rugged road going downhill, and it never did get better. Sometimes I would make a little progress staying sober a few days, and I maybe step up one, make one step forward. But at the end result of the drinking, it was always trouble, and I had fallen back or down two steps. And for 25 years of this, it was a hard climb going down. And of course, I didn't know my makeup at that time and why I drank so much. And since being sober, I'm aware of the fact that I was full of fears, afraid not knowing that I was afraid nor what I was afraid of. But alcohol, booze, always relieves relieve those inner feelings, and I would have some breathers in between. I was locked up for the first time at the age of 19, and it was alcohol-related. I was drunk. And I don't know how many times after then that I was arrested for drunk. I can't remember. 
but it's quite a, quite a few. I had to serve time on the stockade. I don't know how many times, but it was quite a few. I had to serve two sentences on the public works, because that's what they call it today, you know, but back then they call it the chain gang. Of course, that's a clean word for it today, but rehabilitation, they have different names, but anyway, it was back when it was called the chain gang, and I had to serve time. On one occasion, while being locked up, I got drunk in jail and got locked up. <laughs> and that showed me where there is a will, there's a way. Whenever I wanted a drink, I could always get it, regardless of where I was. And I married a wonderful girl whom I loved dearly. We both were very young. She was 18 and I was 20. And I loved my wife. And of this marriage, there were four children that I loved dearly. I loved my family. But I was a full-blown alcoholic at that time, and alcohol had become a must in my life, and it became my master in its sense. And it... It built a shield between my family and I. It was waste. I had many, many good jobs. I learned to cook at a young age, and during my practicing days when I was sober long enough, I would make progress and climb on up a little higher. But as I said before, I would always get drunk and get in trouble, and I'd fall back. Of course, around Atlanta at that time, I was considered one of the best cooks in the city of Atlanta. Of course, the reputation along with it as a drunk, I was one of the worst drunks in the city of Atlanta. <laughs> so on and on it went. I, uh, out of this marriage, as I said, lasted for 17 years. And if there was anybody uh, or anything or any person that I could have stayed sober for, it would have been my family, because I did love them. Of course, uh, she had enough of the problems, which I was her problem, and the best way to get rid of it was to get rid of me, and she got a divorce. And her problems, she thought, at that time was solved. And of course, that didn't stop me from drinking. I had a good excuse, a reason to drink. During the beginning of World War II, uh, being a cook, and I had run up out about all of the hotels around Atlanta, and the guys that worked on the railroad told me, said, John said, you don't have to worry about getting a job, said the railroad, Southern Railroad needs cooks badly. I said, they won't hire me in my cause of my reputation. He said, well, don't pay any attention to that application, just fill it on out and send it in and say, they're not going to run any survey on your record. Said that's not important. That they need cooks. Of course, I listened to the. Uh, of course, now these was fellas that I drank with, you know. <laughs> but they could keep their job. But I was an alcoholic, and so uh, I did get the job just like they told me. About three weeks later, the station master met me at the terminal station as we was coming in from a three-day trip from Atlanta to New Orleans to New York and back. And he told me that Sunday morning, he says, John says, your record as a cook is excellent. He said, but you are not fit 
to work for the Southern Railroad. And naturally, I knew what he was talking about. They had searched my record, and they found out that I was a drunk. And of course, uh, right at this same time, when I got home that morning, I got the papers served on me for a divorce from my first wife. You see, that was two good reasons for me to tie one on, and I did. And of course, on and on, uh, I could stand here for the rest of the evening and tell you about my drinking experiences, but I see that I've told you enough to qualify being where I am here. So uh, there were many people that had tried to help me with my problem. And my uh, saying all the time, they just don't understand. Well, there were relatives, my oldest sister, my mother. My mother prayed. She stayed on her knees. And of course, she had the faith because in our family, there were 13 children. And out of this 13, five of us were alcoholics. My younger brother told me about Alcoholics Anonymous in 1941. And he showed me the big book. And I saw that word alcoholic on there, and I said, no, that's not for me. That's for a bunch of drunks. I don't need it. Of course, he didn't try to preach to me about it. He just left it alone. And he went on on his way to do what he was supposed to do. In fact, his mission back to Atlanta at that time, as Dr. Shoemaker had told him, in New York, if he wanted to get his life straightened out, he had been to AA. He'd have to come back to Georgia and get his chain gang record straightened out. See, there was a little, quite a bit of that chain gang record going on in our family, of course, among the two young brothers. And so he had been to AA and trying to make some amends and getting his life straightened out. That's why he was back in Atlanta. And he told me about it. But I couldn't hear him. I was an alcoholic. In 1951, I was told about Alcoholics Anonymous again by a family of people that I was working for up in Connecticut. She, this lady, had a sister that had been in and out of the institutions to dry out and to go back and drink. But she had come to Alcoholics Anonymous and she had been sober for X number of years. And she, uh, this lady, she saw what was happening to me and she was wanting to help. And of course, I uh, listened to her and I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. Not saying that I was an alcoholic. I just went for the reason of getting them off of my back and getting them good standing in their house again, you know. And so uh, I'd go to meetings. My first meeting I went to, people were extending hands and saying, I'm Mary Bill or John and I'm an alcoholic. But the only thing that I would say is, I'm John. I didn't admit that I was an alcoholic. And why I didn't admit it, because I didn't believe I was one. And so uh, I went to AA meetings in November in 1951. And on through the Christmas holidays, Thanksgiving season and Christmas holidays, I was going to AA and I was staying sober. In fact, uh, they were serving uh, flaming plum puddings and crepe Suzettes during the Christmas holidays and having a big time at Christmas, and I was handling booze, and I wasn't drinking any. 
And but I just to prove that I was an alcoholic. I didn't drink any and I didn't get drunk. But on the twelfth of January nineteen and fifty two, these doubts and reservations that I had in my mind, I set out to prove that I'm not an alcoholic. I bought a half pint of gin and uh, I drank it. Nobody smelt it and I didn't get drunk. Just proves that I'm not an alcoholic. But little did I realize at that time this was just the beginning of another cycle of drinking that I was going to go through, and I wasn't aware of it. And I got started drinking on the 12th of January. I can remember dates now. They go back. I can go back and remember dates that are important. Some of the things uh, that's of less importance, it's not necessary for me to try to remember. But I remember that date because I had just gotten paid off and I don't prove that I'm not an alcoholic. And after two or three days of this, I didn't go to the AA meeting that Thursday and went down to a nephew's of mine and we were slipping drinks. Of course, we chip in together, see, and I tell old man, I said, now you go, when you go to the liquor store, I say, you get another bottle and put it in the bathroom, and we'll just drink out of the one that's in the kitchen here where we're drinking. And so the old man did that. And every once in a while, I'd get up and run to the bathroom, you know, get me a shot and come back and take another shot with them. And of course, on and like that, and that night I got drunk, and the next day on the job, when I come downstairs that early that morning, being the cook in the household, I had to come down early, and there was conveniently a bottle of Jack Daniels and two or three other brands of bourbon and scotch in the butler's pantry, and I naturally reached out over to, and got one. I needed it to stop shaking. Of course, by 11 o'clock that morning, they had to take me back upstairs and pull me out. Of course, the job was gone and we had to come back to Atlanta. Because I had married again, then thinking in terms, say, well, if I had a wife, I wouldn't drink no mo too much. And when we got back to Atlanta, and on this amazing thing, on the way back home, we were drinking. When we left, and we were changing straight trains in Washington, D.C. When we got there and the car had backed into the barn to be cleaned up, everybody was off of the train except my wife Liz and I. And the cleaning porter come back and says, uh, woke us up, says, where are you going? And we told him to Atlanta. I said, are we there already? He said, no, you're in Washington, D.C. And he told us where to get, how to get up and get the train, and we made it on home. We were home a few days, and I saw an ad in the paper. There was an AA group being started just about four blocks from where we lived. And she showed it. My wife showed, me, showed it to me. She said, there's an AA group right up the street. I said, I don't need that thing, AA. I said, I'm not an alcoholic. Of course, she didn't bother me, because she needed it about as bad as I did, you know. 
So uh, I ignored it. And a few days later, I got a job at the Peachtree on Peachtree Hotel as night cook. And this chef cook that was there, he hadn't been in Atlanta very long. And he listened to my lies. Along with my drinking habit, I picked up all of the negative traits and faults. And one of them that I wasn't proud of, but I was the best in, I wanted the biggest liar you ever heard. And he made the mistake, this chef cook made the mistake of listening to me for about five minutes. And I convinced him that I was the man that he needed. And he gave me the job. You see, he was just there uh, not long, just a short while, and he was new around there. He didn't know all the drunk, drunk cooks around Atlanta like other places did. And I'd been there two or three days, and... He saw my work, and he uh, was doing a good job. But he told me, he says, John says, if I'd listened to what a few people said around the hotel here, so I'd have missed out on a good cook. I knew what he was talking about, because there were people working there who had worked with me at other places, and they had told him about me. And the only answer I could give him was, mm-hmm. I knew what he was talking about. But of course, when payday come around, he found out what they were talking about. I got started to drink, and I was gone for two or three days. And of course, I was ashamed to come back, but this being the first time, maybe he'll give me another chance, you know. I went back and talked to him. And with a little reprimand, he was very understanding in his sense, other than not knowing that I was an alcoholic. He wasn't aware of that. And I naturally wouldn't admit that I was an alcoholic. And he gave me a, another chance. He said, you should, you should drink like I do. He says, I get a drink or two at night when I go home, get the paper and read a while, and get up, go on to bed, and come back to my work the next morning. He says, all right to drink. He says, just don't keep on drinking, you know. But as I say, he didn't understand that I was an alcoholic. And neither would I admit it. But when payday come around again, it was the same thing. And I got started drinking on the 20th of February in 1952, and I drank for three days. And it was gone away from home. I couldn't remember where I'd been. But when I got home that Saturday morning, Liz, she uh, didn't know where I was, naturally. She said I acted like she was glad to see me. I don't know whether she was or not. But anyway, she gave me a dollar. said, John, says, go up to the street and get your hair cut and come back and call the chef. Maybe he'll give you your job back. Well, I was glad to get that dollar because I wanted another drink, and I wanted it badly, too. And another thing, I didn't want to sit around home and hear her yak. And you know, I have thought many, many times since that day that God does work in mysterious ways. And little did I realize on that Saturday, this would be the end of my drinking. I started in the barber shop, and there was an old friend of mine, drinking buddy, said, John, where are you going? I said, I started to get a haircut. He said, let's get one. That was good news for me. 
Let's get one. And while we were drinking, around the corner, it was Old Tavern on the corner of Hunter and Ashby Street. Those of you familiar with Atlanta in that area, there was an old tavern there called the Greenleaf Cafe. And while this friend and I were drinking, my mind began to reflect back over my past life. And at that time, where I was and what I was doing, I could see me for what I really was in a drunken stupor. I faced up to the truth that I was an alcoholic. My life was a total and complete failure. And uh, I told this friend of mine, in fact, he was an old bootlegger that I had bought many drinks from. He knew about my family, my wife, previous wife, and four children. And he says, John says, I understand, says, I know. And he says, you know, I'm having a problem with the ball, too. I just about to drink up my bootleg business. <laughs> and, of course, I told him about I had been to a program in New Haven, Connecticut, just a few months prior to then. And I said, hey, it's Alcoholics Anonymous, and it seems to help alcoholics. And I faced up to the truth then. The feeling that I had, it's pretty hard to explain other than the misery and the loneliness and the despair I was going through, even talking with another person, that feeling down inside. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. And I made a decision in a drunken stupor that I wanted to be sober more than anything else in the world. I made that decision, and in my mind, I feel that I'd ask God for help because something happened inside here, not on the surface of things because it was in bad shape, but inside of me something happened, and I feel that I did that first step by admitting that I was powerless over alcohol my life had become unmanageable. I reflected back over my past life, thinking about my children, my previous marriage, my wife, whom I love dearly. And just about a hundred feet from where we were drinking, I had sat on the curb there with my head down between my knees and my oldest child, my daughter. She passed there and saw me in the condition I was in, and she was so hurt. She kept going. I didn't learn about this until after I'd gotten sober. And when she went home, she sent her brother back up and got me and carried me home. Those thoughts came to my mind where I was and where I was drinking. And I wanted out of that squirrel cage and off that miracle round. I wanted to be sober. Sobriety became number one in my life on the 23rd of February and in 1952. And with God's help and you wonderful people in this program, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink. 
Up the street from where we were drinking, I remembered about this group being started. It was just new. In September of 1951 was when it started. And this was February in 52. And this drinking buddy of mine, he went with me around the corner there. Says, I'll go with you, John. Says, uh, maybe I can use it too. We went together. And uh, I was surprised in a sense to see the fellow there. He was employed by the Georgia Department of Labor. And he had sent me out on many good cook's jobs. And he was glad to see me. He said, John says, I know you had a problem. He says, I've had, I have one too. He says, I've been in AA about six months. He says, come on and join with us. He says, we can make it. And uh, they had one big book. That's a news group, as I said, being started. They had one big book. And I was loaned that big book that Saturday. I can, I can remember the day, the day and the weather conditions as if it was today. It was dreary, cloudy, and misty. But it seemed like, in my mind, there was a weight lifted. Because something inside had happened. And I, he told me about the meetings on Monday and Thursday nights. I says, I'll be here. I carried the big book back home that Saturday. My wife Liz saw me coming in. I hadn't had a hair cut. I had a big book under my arm. I don't think she recognized it. And uh, there was something inside which was invisible. She couldn't see and neither could I, but I, but I could feel it, something inside. I'd made that decision. Of course, she says, I've had enough of it. I'm going. I said, well, I hope you don't go, but that was it was less importance to me whether she stayed or went. I says, I'm going to get sober. My mother at that time was 80-odd years old, and she was back in her bedroom. In her usual manner, she'd start to praying and humming a little. I went on back in the room where she was, and I said, Mama, I said, I'm going to get sober. I said, I went to that AA group up the street. She said, Son, that's a new gimmick. I've been here in that life for 25 years. <laughs> but you know, it, the taste and hunger for sobriety at that time, and still is today, was so great what Mama was thinking was of less importance. I began to read that big book that Saturday afternoon and on into the night. And I can't tell you anything that I read in that book at that time. But I do know it was something in there that had gotten my attention, and I wanted what this program had to offer. And I needed a job very badly. But I was so concerned about staying sober, I didn't even go to look for a job about a week or so, possibly two weeks. I went back to the Georgia Department of Labor. 
And I told his buddy, he says, uh, John says, we don't have no cook jobs. I said, do you have any jobs at all? He said, yeah, I got a job there at the bank for a porter. I said, I just want a job and look no different what it is. And he gave me this man's name down to the bank, the CNS bank. Um, they don't mind me referring to them because it's a very understanding institution. I went down to the bank and applied for this job as porter. And the man in the personnel department, he gave me an application to fill out. And it was a similar application to the one I had applied for a job at the Southern Railroad with. Had the same questions on there. See, at the railroad, that application, those questions they asked pertaining to my drinking habits, I lied to every one of them. Do you drink excessively? No. Have you ever been arrested for drinking? No. Have you ever served time for drinking? No. Have you ever served a felony sentence? No. I lied through the whole thing with the railroad. And I got the job. <coughs> but it didn't last. You see, they found out the truth about me. And so on this application at the bank, I had those same questions, and I ignored each one of them. I completed the application except that. And the uh, personnel, man, personnel, called me and he says, why didn't you complete the application? I said, there were things that I couldn't put on paper with pencil or pens that I can say to you. He said, do you want to talk about it? I said, sure. I told him first that I was an alcoholic. And I hadn't had a drink in about three weeks. And I was going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I let him know I wasn't using the program for the purpose of getting the job, but only to let him know how I was trying to stay sober. I told him about my arrest for drinking. I told him about the times that I had served in prison. In fact, I was as honest with that man at that time as I was capable of being. And in spite of my past record, this man gave me a break. And I had never seen him before. Neither had he ever seen me or known of me. And here, another thing, a time I can relate to, God does work in mysterious ways. Little did I realize back then how important it was to get honest with another person. I feel it was as a result of first I had admitted that I was powerless over alcohol. My life had become unmanageable. That was a great truth, and I found freedom in that truth. And I was able then to relate to another person, a complete and total stranger, not in our fellowship either. So he gave me the job with the understanding, says, if you don't show up, on a Monday morning or any time is because of your drink says your job is gone. And I had that, I understood that. And you know, uh, I was very grateful to him for what he had done. And I didn't go there every day telling him, I'm grateful and thank you for what you've done. I went to work. And of course, there was a long story in a sense on that job. 
But it never was a backward or downhill fall. It always was a success of, in a sense of progress going forward. And after 21 and a half years, I retired with a good work record. Five years after I'd been sober, I was in maintenance work and I went around to different banks and servicing the vaults. And this man told me, he says, John says, according to your record, your past record, I would have given you about six months, maybe, not more than a year. I understood what he was talking about. But I let him know that I wasn't sober for the purpose of keeping the job. I was sober because I wanted to be sober, and as a result of it, I had my job. And life was brightening up there, and it was looking better. And how do I get this way? What do I have to do to stay sober? And it tells us in our program of the 12 steps, there's many, many things that I would like to share with you this evening, but time wouldn't permit. But after being sober about 15, 16 years in this fellowship, I like to relate to it in the sense when the pupil is ready, the teacher appears. My friend and your friend, Maggie, our past cross. And it was the best thing that's ever happened since I've been in the program of uh, in the fellowship of AA and trying to work this program. Because it says when a pupil is ready, the teacher appears, our past cross. And she told me one day, says, you are my sponsor. I say, I appreciate that and I need all the help I can get. And she began in sharing her experience and her strength and her hope with me. And we have been able to grow together in this fellowship. I had read those 12 steps over and over. I had tried to apply the principles that they teach, but I hadn't gotten as far along as I would like to have, but I had gotten as far as I was capable of doing. And we began to seek and to search together in this. And I had read the big book, had studied the big book, and the 12 and 12. And so uh, she was leading a discussion, and I hadn't realized how important that third paragraph on page 15 in the 12 and 12 was. And it tells us that AA's 12 steps are a group of principles spiritual in their nature, which are practiced as a way of life. Can't expel the obsession to drink. And enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully home. And this is when I began to seek and to search 
the seas which is related to and the, how it works that God could and would if he was sought. And I heard what was related to the spiritual principles in relation to the first step. Spiritual on, the spiritual principle of three steps is honesty. I had been as honest as I was capable of being up to this point, but with an open mind. This is the how of it. And I like and relate to it as I understand it or see it in the first three steps of the program. It takes a lot of guts to get out of the rut, and it doesn't come easy. And I feel the honesty part had to start from within. And this is when I began to grow a little. The second step relates to open-mindedness. Of course, the spiritual principle for the second step is hope. But to find this hope, I feel I had to open my mind. Because any idea or notion to living and drinking had, uh, had been uh, to no use to me. I had to forget it, put it aside, and open my mind to what this program teaches. That second step relates to came to believe that the power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I didn't have no trouble with that sanity part of that second step. Because all I had to do is look at my own track record. And the first thing I thought in terms of no sane person would repeatedly over and over and over doing the same thing that had given me so much trouble before. Yeah, I was insane as a practicing alcoholic. No sane person would deny a six-month-old baby milk or wife money for milk for the baby and walk six or eight blocks to get a gallon of moonshine. Is that sanity? No sane person would come out of jail been gone for 27 months away from his family and on a date of release before he gets home, get started drinking and be about drunk when you get that. Do you call it sanity? No. But the second the word in that second step has so much meaning to me and for me. That word believe. And I feel that if I believe anything strong enough and long enough, it will become real in my life. And so I do have a higher power whom I choose to call God. And I believe in him. And through continuous belief, he has been able to do in my life what I couldn't do with for it. He's made a better, done a better job in my life than I did. I made a mess of it. So I have that belief. I have a faith. Because my mind is open today. Much more, more so today than it was on the 23rd of February in 52. It's broadening now, and I have to keep it open. And so I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood it. And I found the God of my understanding in this fellowship so different from the one that I'd heard about in the poor book. He's a God of forgiveness as I understand it. 
He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. A God of kindness. A God of goodness. And I feel that anything that is of God is good because God is good. You know, I hear some time ago I began to feel the need more and more of that third step prayer and making the decision to turn my will and my life over to it, to him, I do it daily. God, I offer myself to thee to build and to do with me as I will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties. That victory over them may bear witness to those I may help of thy power and thy love and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And I realize and understand whatever change through pain that might come about in my life, it had to be depending on how willing I am to let go and to let God. I am my biggest problems. I cause me more trouble than anybody. I can't blame nobody else for my problems, my misery, and my hurt. I cause them. So I have to practice tolerance, and I have to practice patience, and letting other people have the right to be, because I want to be me. And the only way that I can be me is to let you have the right to be. This is part of my daily bread using that third step. And it takes a lot of courage to venture into the fourth step. It doesn't come easy. They didn't tell me this program would be easy. They told me it would work. And up to this point, it is working because I am still trying to let it work. I made that searching and fearless moral inventory. I didn't like what I saw. I was a liar, a cheat, and a thief, an adulteress, sexually maladjusted, you name it, anything relating to negative emotions, I was guilty of it. I didn't like what I saw when I wrote it down, but it was the truth. And I had to use a lot of honesty in that fourth step. It didn't come easy, but it works. In the fifth step, admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. The exact nature of my wrongs were many. And I told them to another person. I shared with another person. God already knew it, and I knew it, and I shared it with another person. And I shared with many, in a sense. And no one in this fellowship has criticized me for the nature of my wrongs. The only answer that I've gotten was I understand, because this is an understanding problem. The sixth step were entirely ready to have God remove all of these defects of character. And it takes a lot of doing to get ready. And it takes a lot of willingness to do it. To let him have it. I have to ask God to make me willing to turn loose of these things. In the seventh step, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. And I fear that he'll remove those shortcomings in the same manner in which he removed the obsession to drink. I didn't do it. I got out of the way and he did it. 
So I quit bargaining with God when I first got into the program. Before I got here, there were many times, Lord, if you just let me get my family back, I'll never take another drink. Lord, if you just do this or do that, I'll never take another drink. I haven't petitioned in that respect since being here. I asked daily for strength and guidance. One thing about it, he hadn't directed me to a bottle, and he hadn't uh, had to pull a glass down, you know, from my mouth. He gave me the strength, and he gives me the courage, and he directs me. The eighth step made a list of all persons we'd harmed and became willing to make amends to them all, which naturally eight and nine works together. Making direct amends to such people wherever possible, except to do so with any of them or others. Well, I made this list. Number one, to my household at home, to my mother and my wife, my first wife, my children. And you know, I went and made amends to my first wife and tell her, after I'd been sold about two years, tell her how sorry I was for the way that I treated she and the children. Of course, she had heard that I was staying sober and doing pretty good. And her statement was that you could make get sober for another woman, but you couldn't get sober for me. <laughs> Which that was understandable. But you know, we became real good friends. She passed about seven years ago, but for about 18 or 20 years, we were real good friends. We kept in touch with one another. We could share with one another. And at times, she would tell me, she said, she say, you know, I feel partly responsible for our separation. She said, some things that I did, which brought it about also. Because I wasn't questioning her pertaining to her faults and mistakes. I was sharing with her how sorry I was for what I'd done to her and the children. So, uh, in making these a direct amends, except to do so with injured them or others, there were many letters. I had written letters to people that I had hurt and apologized to them. I haven't gotten an answer from them. That's been 27 years ago or more. <laughs> That's all right. It wasn't supposed to answer. I took the action and did what I was supposed to do. And it tells us in the big book and relating to these promises which we were talking about a little last night. After we get through this ninth step, we began to realize our progress in the program. And it tells us that if we are painstaking at this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we're halfway through. And that is true. I have gotten to the point where I can take some pain now. It doesn't have to be smooth sailing. Everything doesn't have to go my way. And it is amazing from what happened as I try to grow in this program. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness, and that is true. When we are relieved, when I was relieved of the bondage, of the session to drink, I was amazed, and I hardly realized it, but there was some freedom there. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it, because it was my past experiences what got me here. It took every drink that I took. If there's been one more, there'd been too many. If there'd been one less, it wouldn't have been enough. 
So as my dog passed, somewhere in the big book, I don't know where it is, but I read it, it says in there that I was, dog pass is our most precious possession. I believe that because of my past experiences. I don't want to look at it, but it's the truth. And there's something that nobody can take away from me. It's an experience. My dog passed. It's what it took to get me here. And thank God for it. Not proud of it, but this is what it took. Not so much for what I had to suffer, but the hate that I had put on other people. Not proud of it. We comprehend the word serenity. We will know peace. It seems that our mind is beginning to open up a little bit more now through comprehending and understanding and knowing that peace from within. We will see how our experience with another person can help them. And that use feeling of useless and self-pity, it does disappear. Losing interest in selfish things and gaining interest in others. And I feel the greatest of all of those promises, that last one is released, is the realization that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I'm not down here on my goodness. It's only by his mercy he saw fit for me to be here. And through the instruments of this the group of this conference over here, that I'm here today, God working in mysterious ways. And I'm grateful for it. And I feel that in the last part, do we think these are extravagant promises? Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. But they will always materialize if we work for them. And so this tells me I have got to work and to keep on working in this fellowship to stay sober. In the tenth step relating to a daily inventory. Continue to take personal inventory. Just because I have a few days of sobriety behind me, I haven't gotten perfect, clean, nothing like perfect adherence to these principles. Still trying to grow along spiritual lines. So I have to take, continue to take personal inventory. And when wrong, promptly admit it. A daily check. Not for what I want you to think I am, but for what I know. Not for what people might think, but what I know. I'm the first to know when I'm wrong. A little thing, a little sign I have in my basement in my AA room. I cause me more trouble than anybody. I am my biggest problem. And I read that quite often when I go through there, and I don't have to read it to remember it. So thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And that's very important. Daily having a quiet time. You see, he saw fit for me to get to the point where I could retire. I've been retired now a little, well, a little better than seven years. But my life is fuller today than it's ever been. And I am enjoying every day of it. Even these rough spots, once in a while, too. You know, uh, it takes uh, <laughs> a little pain in order for me to take action. 
So I have to keep constant contact with him and asking him for strength and guidance daily to make me to know his will and give me the strength to do his will. And naturally, the 12 steps as it relates to having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. This is a program of action, what we are discussing in our big book and working with others now. We have, <coughs> let me say this, we have on one of our Tuesday night meetings, we have a big book study group. And we read paragraph by paragraph and share with one another our feelings relating to each paragraph and what it says to us. Not long ago, just a few weeks ago, we were talking about assuming that uh, we are spiritually fit. We don't have to run from alcohol no more. We are spiritually fit. About three months after I'd been with the bank, I saw a chance that I could make some money serving parties. We have summer parties there about two or three times a year. And I asked the personnel man if he could arrange for me to go up to the recreation at Altoona and serve on these parties. He says, John says, you know they're going to have beer and liquor and all that up there. He says, it's going to be, a tempt going to be tempting to you. I says, uh, as long as I pour it and you drink it, ain't nowhere in the world it's going to rape me. <laughs> and I took that attitude. And you know, I, the whole while I was working there, I had commitments for attending bar and serving booze for so long as I worked, and especially through the holiday season, one right after another. But my purpose was, uh, handling booze was to make a buck. And I told him, I said, you know, the liquor store is still open right across the street where I come in the bank every day I pass it. They haven't closed it up because I stopped drinking. <laughs> and so I don't have to run from liquor now. If I have a reason, uh, a purpose in the bar, I can go there. I don't go to the bar to drink. I go to the bar to get a Coca-Cola either. There's a grocery store next door, you know. But these things, when we are spiritually fit, if we are growing spiritually, this is the name of the game as far as I'm concerned. And I don't claim anything like perfect adherence to it either, but I'm still trying to go spiritually. Carrying a message to the alcoholic who still suffers. And I feel the best message that we can carry to that suffering alcoholic is the power of example, staying sober. And if we are sober, if I am sober, I have something to share with a suffering alcoholic. The experience as a practicing alcoholic and sharing my feelings of a gift that was given to me in this fellowship. An unearned gift. I'm not worthy of it. But God saw fit for me to have it. And you people have helped me. And practicing these principles in all our affairs the last part. Just not in the confines of an AA room or meeting. In this outer world out there. Of course, uh, thinking in terms of these principles and all my affairs, I have a challenge daily right at home. I have to let my wife have the right to be if I want to be me. 
And I don't try to force my opinion and attitudes on her, my opinion or decisions on her. If I want to make my decision and to be me, I have to let her have the right to be. Not just at home, but in the grocery store and the people I meet on the highways and the byways, and people I come in contact with, not in AA, trying to share a little word of kindness to another person. And it's real joy in living when, we can, when I can share this. I can't say it for you. I can say when I share this feeling with another person, a feeling of gladness and joy and understanding with another person, I feel good. There's many, many things that has happened since being sober I'd like to share with you. I know I'm running over a little bit, but it's one I would like to share is what, in relating to what this program has done for me, if there's such thing as an excuse or reason to drink, I've had more since I've been sober. I was sober 12 years <clears throat> in this program, and at that time, I was going to federal penitentiary about two Sundays a month. And this Sunday morning, my mother told me, says, son, says, I'd like for you to stay at home and kind of help me get my room straightened out. I said, sure, Mama. I said, I don't have to go. Go next Sunday. Little did I realize at this time, this was something that was working for God. God was working in mysterious ways. And at 10 o'clock, at the time I suppose I had said I was going to the prison, I was at home and I got a telephone call. And uh, it was a hospital in Syracuse, New York, my oldest daughter had been in an automobile wreck. Let me say here, you know, since being sober, I have regained the love and the confidence of my children, and we are very close to them. But this being the oldest child, she had been married, she went up to live with a sister of mine in Connecticut. And she was hurt in an automobile accident at Syracuse, and then they talking to the nurse, and another thing here, she had, when she left home, she had been living with her mother. But she, when she was hurt, she had my telephone number and my address in a place. She didn't have a mother's. So this nurse called me for the with the information she got out of her place, and she says, your daughter Joyce has been seriously hurt in an automobile accident. I asked her what was her condition. She says she's on a critical list. I said, what's the chances? She said, maybe 50-50. And while talking on the phone, the thought came to me. God give me strength to accept whatever the outcome might be. And you know, this was granted just like the snap of your finger. I didn't get upset, naturally hurt, but I didn't get upset. And she told me, I asked her if she'd let me know what her condition was, and I would call her, and if she would call me back to let me know what whatever changes made. Three days later, the nurse called me and told me, says, if you want to see your daughter alive, say, you better come. Well, it wasn't a hard decision to make. I had already talked with the mother and told her what, of course, the mother knew what was happening. 
The cell had been completely scalped. All of this had been laid back, both arms, broken legs, crushed chest, stomach paralyzed. And so our mother and I had planned to go on that Wednesday. And I called the personnel, uh, the, uh, my uh, manager, uh, boss at the bank, and told him what had happened. Of course, he already knew for the last two or three days. And he said, well, John says, uh, when you're ready to go, let me know. And so I called him this morning, and he says, well, have you made reservations? I told him, no. He said, well, we have a tra naturally have a travel apartment with the bank. He said, I'll see if we can't get you a direct flight through. This was about 7.30 that morning I went to work. About 8 o'clock, he called me back. He says, we can't get you a direct flight, but we do have two tickets ready for you at the travel department, and you can get out at 2 o'clock. So I called the kid's mother and told her, so she said, well, we can go. We made it up there. And, and, uh, and it, it was, we were fortunate to get there before the kid died. We went into the intensive care room there, and she was in a semi-conscious condition. She'd come and go. Her mind would go and come. But when she looked up and saw her parents, we could see a release expression of relief on her face. So I didn't bargain with God. I almost asked in this sense. I said, God, if you spare my child, is there not anything I would do to take care of him? And I thought that was kind of selfish in this sense, trying to bargain with him. So I thought in terms, I will be done. And on 6 o'clock that Saturday morning, we were there all night, the days come in. She said, Joyce is gone. And you know, the weight was lifted, a release, that she's out of her suffering. Thank God. So there has been many, many things that has happened in my road, a journey of sobriety. If such thing as an excuse to drink, I wouldn't be standing here sober today. But I do know, by God's grace and the help of you people, it ain't nothing that can happen in my life today that I'll have to drink at. And I like to think in terms of my journey of sobriety and compare it with a little poem that I love dearly when Helen Steiner Rice's poem. Try to climb till your dream comes true. It says, often the task will be many and more than you think you can do. Often the roads will be rugged and the hills insurmountable too. But always remember the hills ahead are never as steep as you seem. With faith in your heart, start upward and climb till you reach your dreams. For nothing in life that is worthy is ever too hard to achieve if you have the courage to try it and the faith to believe. For faith is a force 
that is greater than knowledge of power or skill. And many defeats under triumph if you trust in God's wisdom and will. For faith is a move of mountains. There's nothing that God cannot do. So start out today with faith in your heart. Climb till your dream comes true. Again, thank you so much for letting me be here today. And I want to thank you to see for the uh, kindness and the courtesy that you've shown here. I really enjoyed myself these last two days. God bless you, and I do love you. Thank you.